Back in June of 2015, we were honored to have Corey and Lori Cole join us on our vidcast. At the time, they were running their successful Hero U Kickstarter. They are probably most famous for the Quest for Glory RPG adventure game series that they produced for Sierra Online. They truly are two legends of PC gaming. Here's our interview. So, hello, Lori and Corey Cole. Um, thanks for joining this uh, big box PC game collectors hangout. Um, first of all, congratulations on the successful Kickstarter, which is still going on, but you've reached the, at least the goal, and now a couple of stretch goals, I believe, too. So, hopefully, we can keep on going with that and get all the stretch goals, including the voice acting. Looking forward to that very much. So, so welcome, guys, and thanks very much for joining. It looks like Sierra was really good about making sure that game creators got credit for the games they produced because um, your games had had your names and pictures on the back, and um, all the you know, Lucy, Larry, and all those folks had it. So that was a very nice touch for them as, as a developer to do that, especially during a time uh, early in in gaming history. Well, I don't guess they were that early, but yeah, there was a lot of um, folks who didn't get credit for the games they made, so that's really cool of Sierra to do that. Well, initially they were giving everybody credit, and you'll notice that credit got uh, less and less as they went on, because at first they wanted everybody to be a star, but then as they realized that the problem with stars is that stars don't always stay on the sky, so therefore you get less and less credit as, as uh, the years went by, because they were more concerned with branding things than branding the people. The uh, Game for Legend, uh, uh, we always pronounce it Shannara. Uh, is that right? Or Shannara? No, I guess we called it the sort of Shannara. <laughs> and then we learned from Terry Brooks that he called it Shannara. <laughs> uh, so Shannara is the official title of the game. Uh, and uh, we actually got into a fight with uh, one of the marketing people at uh, Legend Entertainment about credit. Uh, because we felt very strongly that, every, that everybody who had worked on the game, you know, should be, uh, you know, prominently credited. And just relatively at the last minute, uh, you know, shortly before the game shipped, uh, uh, we were told they were taking all the credits out of the manual. And I can't remember if that was because of space reasons or because they just don't, didn't feel that, uh, uh, you know, there was any reason to credit the team members. And we, we thought that was crazy. You know, we thought that... Uh, uh, everybody who works in a game really deserves, you know, that much credit at least. Um, and uh, we actually managed to sneak it into the uh, uh, inside the game. We kept the credits uh, by stealth uh, by basically saying, oh, uh, well, you know, the game's about to go into duplication and uh, we'll need to do another full test cycle uh, if we change that because, you know, changing those screens involves a code change and a a rebuild and so on, and you know, who knows what side effects that might have. Uh, uh, which is actually from a bit of my history when I worked at Olivetti, uh, I had a last minute change to a build, uh, and it turned out I introduced a very small bug to it. Uh, but by the rules of Olivetti, because there was a, you know, a bug had been found, uh, they had to do an entire QA cycle on the entire product before it would ship. So uh, that very small error uh, delayed the uh, shipment by uh, three to four weeks. <laughs> so, so I managed to use that to my advantage at uh, Legend and say, "Oh, we we can't take those credits out of the game yet because we believe very strongly that uh, you know the game is the sum of all the entire team." <laughs> or if we take the credits out, it might cause like another QA cycle, right? And then uh, it should cause the game to be late. So uh... <laughs> and, and realistically, so, that could that that could ahead, happen, especially when you're talking big box games. 
you know, we're going back to, we're, uh, we're in the floppy disk era, era when we started our first game in uh, 89, and our first uh, several games were all released on floppies. Uh, and you had, say, a 360K floppy disk, uh, you know, or sooner or later you got up to 640 and above, but uh, uh, the uh, original PC floppy disk were 360K on a disk. Uh, and people did not own hard drives, so it wasn't a matter of installing, uh, you know, uh, eight or ten floppy drives to it. So that meant that every one of those disks had to duplicate all the data uh, that was, uh, you know, that was common throughout the game. So if you had uh, your character being able to walk, sneak, and run, uh, that animation was duplicated on all eight or ten disks. And that's one of the reasons why there were so many disks. There was only probably, you know, four or five or six disks worth of content. Uh, but half of every disk was taken up by stuff that had to be on every single one. So you ended up with 180K left for all the new content. And was that like the resource, the resource dot zero 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 that was on every disk? Was that what that stuff was? Or was that something else? Uh, yeah. yeah, I think you're correct. I think so there was a resource dot zero 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 on every disk, and then there were a number of resources, one per disk. So whatever the size of the resource dot zero 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 was, I couldn't tell you, uh, but that was a file that had to be on every disk because that was stuff that applied throughout the game. So, so Corey, I would ask you guys, I know that it's clear that your your background is programming, just just from hearing you talk for five minutes, and mine is too, by the way, but, um, and I know you worked on a bunch of other games that I didn't show, but you were, you were a programmer on those games for Sierra, and I'm assuming that's how you got into the game designer gig eventually, but um, what about what about you, Lori? How did you end up becoming a game designer? Because you're not a programmer, as far as I know. Well, that was stealth. That was what I, th I think I'll let Corey start that one out because he's the one that was into computer games before I was. Well, actually, no. I was into games that were on computers, but they were just handheld computers at the time, the earliest handheld computers before I even uh, saw ever touched a real computer. All right, so she maybe even got into them before I did. Uh, but yeah, we got into uh, Sierra not be well, okay. Originally, not anything to do with programming. Uh, what had happened is we were um, we published a, a, a gaming uh, fantasy gaming uh, newsletter, which we called the Spellbook. Uh, that was Dungeons and Dragons and similar games uh, as just a you know fan thing, uh, and uh, we were very active in uh, science fiction and fantasy conventions. And one of the things we did there was a thing called filk music. So I mean, we're, we're really going astray here. Uh, but uh, trust me, it'll get back to the point. <laughs> uh, folk music is uh, science fiction and fantasy, uh, uh, you know, songs, usually parodies of existing songs or sometimes original ones. So we did a lot of that. And uh, uh, living in the San Francisco Bay Area, there was a little bit of community of uh, filkers, and every once in a while we'd go over to somebody's house and, uh, you know, sit around in a circle and share uh, songs, very, very similar to folk singing. Uh, one of the people there was Carly Hawk's daughter, uh, and Carly grew up in Corsgold near, uh, near Oakhurst, where Sierra's located. Uh, and she was an artist and an animator. And uh, she had, from time to time, been called on to uh, help with some of their games. And in particular, King's Quest IV, she did all the animation of Rosella and so on. Uh, well, Ken had a, uh, a big meeting at the company to say, okay, you know, we've pretty much saturated the adventure game market. Where do we go from here? And no. previously... Previously, Sierra had published Ultima 2 uh, for Richard Garriott uh, and, uh, you know, had made a you know, fair amount of money with him, but uh, Richard did not like the terms that he had. They were not paying him as much money as he felt he was owed, 
uh, and got into disagreements with them, and he went out and started his own company, Origin Systems, to publish his games. So uh, Ken said, hey, uh, you know, these role-playing uh, game things, they're worth some money. Let's go. Uh, we should make a role-playing game. Okay, so Carly uh, was invited to sit in that uh, brainstorming meeting, and Ken said, okay, I need, uh, you know, uh, a uh, master level, uh, you know, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it was basically, uh, you know, prize-winning, uh, uh, award-winning uh, uh, tournament-level dungeon masters to make a game for us. And so Carly Hochstadter says, well, I might know some people like that. And she knew us from Filking and also had played in uh, some D&D games we ran, so she came over and said, hey, how would you guys like to work for Sierra? And said, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, so uh, I got on the phone with Ken, and uh, Ken couldn't care less about the fact that, you know, we were uh, experienced Dungeon Masters, and I had published a, a D&D module and stuff like that. Um, but then I uh, said, well, you know, I got everybody in-house wants to be a game designer. Uh, why should I hire you? And I said, well, I can, you know, I know how to talk to game designers because... Uh, I'm a programmer in my most recent project in the Atari ST, and that pretty much uh, completely reversed the call, because Ken didn't know if he needed a game designer or not, but he did know he needed an Atari ST programmer, and that there, you know, we were scarce as hen's teeth. Uh, so I got hired to uh, uh, to work in their Atari ST uh, uh, version of SCI, and uh, a few months later, uh, Lori had an interview there and talked to, you know, we... Uh, uh, the, the original drawings for uh, Quest for Glory, actually, Lori did in crayon <laughs> on uh, paper. And we showed those off, and I did a little uh, page of marketing saying, here's the similarities to other Sierra games, here's the differences, and here's why we think these games will sell. Um, and they said, oh, that sounds pretty good. And uh, eventually they uh, brought Lori on as a, uh, you know, to do uh, uh, Heroes Quest. Uh, but, you know, it all cool. started because I, I happened to mention the phrase Atari ST. <laughs> so, so quick question: What you said before? So, Filking—that's like the the folk music and the science fiction thing. So that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Filking started out as a typo in a fanzine uh, back when uh, fanzines were all mimeographed, uh, and somebody was talking about it. They uh, uh, they had gone to a convention, and uh, uh, people had uh, uh, sung folk songs there and played music and sang folk songs. Except he misspelled it and typed Filk. And the rest of the science fiction community picked it up and said, ooh, filking, that's what it is. We're not doing folk songs. We're doing filk songs. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah it's, yeah, it's gone semi-pro over the years. Uh, back when we were doing it, there was a group called Off Centaur uh, Publications run by Terry Lee uh, and, uh, and later uh, Jordan Kerr. And uh, they were the first to actually collect these songs and print songbooks, and they started making cassette tapes, uh, uh, that they sold at conventions of, uh, of folk things. And gradually, you know, originally, um, you'd have, you know, 20 or 30 people sitting around in a circle, and there would be two people with any talent in the group. And, uh, and then you had to listen to all the uh, raucous off-key singing of everyone else. Uh, <laughs> and it was pretty terrible. And uh, gradually it became uh, more, you know, more semi-professional over, over time. So my first exposure to Heroes Quest was actually in college, um, someone installed it on the server, <laughs> and then there was a link to a game. And I had played like King's Quest and Space Quest and Police Quest before, maybe even maybe Leisure Suit Larry too. But I didn't, this was nothing new, and uh, I didn't know what to make of it at the beginning because it's just sort of like, okay, I'm 
climb tree, and I gotta climb the tree again, climb a tree again. It's, I guess I, I was I played some RPGs, like I played Pool of Radiance, for example, before that. But I wasn't a big RPG or was more of an adventure game, right? I didn't know what to make of it. Once I started getting into it, I thought it was great. But did you guys have any? I mean, in terms of a reaction of the press or the fans, was was it very positive, or did you have sort of like people didn't know what to do with it? Adventure gamers didn't know what to do with it. RPGers didn't know what to do with it. We still had a problem. Today, someone linked this to a uh, rock paper shotgun article about the 25 best adventure games of all time. Uh, and uh, we're not on the list. And the reason we're not on the list is uh, we are in the article itself uh, where it says uh, uh, we did not include Quest for Glory even though it's a fantastic game because uh, according to the word of God, Quest for Glory is actually a role-playing game rather than an adventure game. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, whether God is, uh, uh, is uh, uh, Cobbett or, uh, or Walker or me. But uh, <laughs> anyway, apparently we're not actually an adventure game. Uh, we got a, a, some excitement uh, about two and a half years ago where uh, there's there are a couple of blogs. One's uh, uh, The Adventure Gamer, uh, and the other one is CRPG Addict. And one of them has been going through the you know the history of older adventure games, and the other one was sequentially going through all the uh, role-playing games. And uh, both of them gave us, uh, respectively, Adventure Game of the Year and, and Role-Playing Game of the Year for Heroes Quest for 1990. So we thought that was pretty cool. That's and, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't. Unfortunately, that doesn't uh, buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> and uh, Sierra wasn't sure what to make of us either. Uh, I mean, uh, when we went there, they wanted to get something like an Ultima game because they had actually had the they had distributed Ultima the la the previous Ultima, and uh, Richard Garriott decided that he really would rather make the profit himself rather than give it all to Sierra. So therefore. Ken wanted to create another his own version of Ultima, which is why we were hired. But when I for an RPG, but when I looked at their system and what they were doing with adventure games, it would not adapt well for a straight Ultima style game. So I adapted it to uh, an adventure role playing using their engines so that we could use the best of, of what they were presenting. And so of course Ken Williams had no idea what we were doing. And he wasn't sure at all whether it would work. There was no real, I mean, a couple times we were told that, you know, they were thinking of canceling the game until we had uh, one person um, who was our, who they brought on as our um, quote-unquote producer, who was uh, Garuka Singh Khalsa, who uh, really thought that this was great. And, but the ultimate thing that was the go, yes, we will go and finish this game, was the fact that Ken's son actually played the game and said, hey, yeah, this is pretty cool. And uh, once it hit the stands, though, it was a success by Sierra standards. They were really thrilled. And that's why we got to do the series. Because if that one hadn't been such an overwhelming success, we probably would have packed our bags and gone back to wherever. Pre-release, the word was that... Uh what we were doing had no market, uh, that uh, adventure gamers would see the role-playing game label and say, this isn't for me, and role-playing gamers would see the adventure game label and say, this isn't for me, uh, and everybody was taken by surprise, all the Sierra people, us, uh, uh, by the extremely positive press we got uh, just before and just after release, uh, so the, the game was an immediate success, uh, sold, you know, for Heroes Quest sold over 100,000 uh, copies in the the first month, which was uh, normally uh, what they would expect to happen in three months, uh, you know, or even a year, 
Uh, so uh, the game was very successful right out the gate and uh, took everybody everybody by surprise. We were you know we weren't making a game because we had some great instinct about what would make a great commercial game. We were making a game where we said uh, you know if somebody made this game we'd like to play it. If you could play the game at whatever way you wanted. So if you wanted to play like an RPG, you could play it like an RPG, like make a fighter or make a magic user for that matter. I always felt like the thief was more like an adventure game because like you didn't have any really great skills. You just had to sort of sneak around and solve the puzzles and whatever. But um, when I played the game the first time, I actually rolled a character that had like a thief, I think, and, he, and I used all my extra points to give him magic also. So then the day I had like a fighter magic user thief hybrid, and I I didn't want to choose, I guess, so I played through the game that way, and I had a lot of fun. But then in the later games, you force people to choose because if you you know whichever official character you are is what decides if you get invited to like the Eternal Order of Fighters versus you know the Thieves Guild versus the uh, the Wizards Academy, the whatever it was called. Uh, it's, it's escaping me, Pascal Prime members. But anyway, you sort of got forced into choosing at one point. Well, we found out right away that people were replaying the game. And so we wanted to encourage that replayment. Um, a lot of other games that had multiple paths to the game discovered it was a waste of money and resources because most people, just like, like uh, Indiana Jones and the uh, Temple of Atlantis, for instance, which had three paths through the game, most people only played it once, and so therefore it was a lot of effort going in to make it that way. But and, and that was wasted on Indiana Jones. But in our case, the overwhelming fan response was that they were playing it multiple times. So the trick was to try to make those multiple paths through the game feel like they were really significantly different, and you were getting more play value when you replayed. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm just curious. Have either of you guys ever seen the fan game Quest for Glory Four and a Half? <laughs> uh, just a little bit, and I read uh, uh, Richard Cobbett's article on it, which uh, wonderfully tears through shreds. <laughs> yeah, you don't need to go see it, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, you know our issue on that because we ask we have people all the time asking us, you know, saying I'd like to make you know uh, uh, a a uh, you know something uh, off in the wet Quest for Glory world or I want to make a, a paper tabletop role-playing game based on uh, Quest for Glory and so on. And we kind of say, well, you know, go for it, but we think you'd be better off uh, using your own creativity and coming up with a world, world of your own. There's really nothing all that special. Uh, you know, I, even our locations in Quest for Glory are, uh, you know, stolen from Earth. Uh, uh, you go down to uh, Somaria, that's actually Crete. Uh, and uh, you go to... Uh, uh, Spielberg, and that's uh, you know obviously in Germany and so on. Uh, so you know it's not like we have this amazingly original uh, uh, world, but you know within that world we painted it well. So it's out of curiosity um, um, for those who may be watching who who don't know that of course the name of the game changed from Hero Quest to Quest for Glory, and I'm assuming that the reason that that transpired was because of this evil thing here, that's the uh, Hero Quest board game by. It was Milton Bradley in the States, but I'm curious about how that went down. And was it a big shake-up, or was it a big um, thing for Sierra? Yeah, that was a uh, Games Workshop in England did the original version of that, and later Milton Bradley licensed it. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, of course uh, in the introduction, uh, uh, Stuart already uh, made the mistake of calling the first game Hero Quest rather than Hero's Quest. So that was deemed by the courts to be 
Uh, oh, that's okay, but it's, it was confusingly similar to Hero Quest, so you're right in that. Uh, and uh, and Milton Bradley basically wanted to stop us from publishing the game. The problem is that uh, we actually came out before Hero Quest was released in the U.S. Uh, and so they had a little problem stopping that. But what they did is they threatened instead. And what they said is that we have uh, the uh, the trademark of this name Hero Quest uh, in England, uh, and we will not allow you to distribute distribute your games in uh, the UK if you use that name. Well, the problem was that UK wasn't just the UK; that was Sierra's distribution center for all of Europe. So what they effectively told us is, uh, go ahead and use the name Heroes Quest, but you won't be able to sell a single copy in Europe if you do that. Uh, and uh, Ken. I uh, got on the phone to one of the executives at Milton Bradley and uh, reported, yeah, I think he offered them $50,000 to uh, uh, for us to keep the name, uh, but reportedly the uh, uh, the phone call was uh, uh, was done in such a condescending uh, manner of, you know, we're the big boys and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you guys should play by our rules and so on. Whatever the actual phrasing was, reportedly he angered the executive so much that he said, no way will we ever give you a license for that name doing a computer game, and that was the pr real problem. As long as they were board game and not computers, then it wasn't a problem. But the minute they said, oh no, we want to do this Hero Quest board, I mean, computer game, that's when we had to, to uh, squabble, and the fact is that Sierra had not really trademarked slash copyrighted the name, and as a result, therefore, we lost rights. Yeah, Sierra did their usual, which is they did a uh, trademark and copyright search, determined the name was available, and stopped there. Uh, they didn't do the second stage, which, is, which was to actually trademark it themselves. Uh, I think Heroes Quest, our Heroes Quest actually came out before the uh, uh, computer game Hero Quest, but the computer game Hero Quest was licensed from the board game, uh, and so they managed to convince a... Uh, I don't know if it ever went to court or not, but... Uh, Somehow they managed to convince Ken that we would be in big trouble if we tried to come out with the name Heroes Quest. We also uh, had the similar problem later when we did Quest for Glory 3, Wages of War. There was actually a um, computer game that was going to come out with the name Wages of War. And they had the rights to that. They had actually tried to trademark, uh, yes, a trademark because they hadn't got the game out. And so, therefore, we had to actually change the name of Wages of War to Secrets of the Lost City in some of our publications. But eventually, the game didn't, the other computer game didn't come out, and we never bothered to change the rest of the stuff. Right, I was going to ask you, uh, big box collectors, uh, did any of you ever see a game that was Quest for Glory 3, Seekers of the Lost City? I have not. Okay, so they never, Sierra promised to uh, uh, change that, and what uh, uh, the uh, uh, general manager, Rick Cavan, told me privately was, uh, well, you know, we'll make this deal, uh, but we've pretty much already sold out our initial run, and at that point, uh, the games market had changed dramatically between Heroes Quest and Quest for Glory 3, and I'll get back to that, but uh, basically said that what we sell in the first three months is pretty much most of what we sell. Uh, so we'll agree to do this, and then we won't actually bother doing it because we're not going to really make many, co many more copies of this game anyway. Uh, when we first started Sierra, the half-life of the game at Sierra was 18 months, and what that meant was that they sold 
uh, half of their lifetime copies in the first year and a half. Um, as the moment the first uh, VGA games came out, uh, that completely changed the dynamic. All of a sudden, nobody wanted the VGA games anymore. That'll get into another footnote. Uh, but uh, the uh, Half-Life, almost overnight, changed from 18 months to three months. The, uh, so now Sierra was selling half of the games they would ever sell in the first three months of publication. Uh, and uh, prior to that, they relied on their backlist for most of the profit of the company. So it really became a tough business when uh, uh, stores would not keep, you know, would only keep things in the shelf for a month and stuff like that, and then would bring in the new titles. Uh, so the uh, was the foot oh, the footnote was uh, recently uh, we've had, you know, a lot of uh, argument about uh, our various changes in art style. And you know, one of the things I said is that one of the reasons that uh, Hero U, our new game, is uh, behind schedule is because we discovered that the uh, uh, the 2D animation just didn't work right. We couldn't get things to animate smoothly and so on. And we went to 3D. And uh, some people hated that. And a lot of people were saying, well, you should have stayed with the original 16-color uh, EGA art like you had for Heroes Quest and uh, Quest for Glory 2. And actually going back, you know, looking at the web, I say, those games actually had a charm of their own. Like, you know, 16-color look did, uh, you know, did work. But the audience told us otherwise. The audience told us, uh, we do not want 16-color games. Uh, Quest for Glory 2 shipped around the same time as King's Quest 5, and we were the last 16-color game from Sierra, and King's Quest 5 was the first 256-color game from Sierra, and you know whether it was the name change from Heroes Quest to Quest for Glory 2, or is the fact that we weren't VGA, uh, relatively speaking, Quest for Glory 2 bombed. And we've had a lot of people tell us, you know, that's our best game of the series, Two and four are the most uh, popular, uh, but sales-wise, it was a it was a disaster for Sierra. So that's why we say we're not doing any sixteen-color games these days. Well, the irony is that the Heroes Quest, the Hero Quest game, did come out and it was pretty much garbage, <laughs> and the Heroes Quest is pretty much universally liked and and you know collectors' items per se. Um, by the way, from the collector's perspective, my understanding is that the EGA version of Quest for Glory 1 is the most collectible version of Heroes Quest or Quest for Glory 1 just because, I guess like you said, almost all the sales happened before they changed the name, and the ones after they changed the name, there weren't too many of them, so collectors like to get the rarest one. I personally like the first edition, so I go for Heroes Quest, and Pascal gets everything, so he probably has every single version that exists. There you go. <laughs> he even has Japanese versions and Taiwanese versions and things like that. But uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we have a we have a few versions. Sierra used to give us some of the boxes of games, and uh, when we were first doing it, that they would uh, basically give uh, each designer a case of the games, uh, and then most of our copies got traded off. We'd go to the game developer conference, and uh, in the early days of uh, GDC, it was very. Uh, uh, it was a very loose atmosphere and everybody was friends and people would go around uh, with uh, you know with a, a case of their uh, uh, their games in the trunk and they would go around and uh, uh, trade off with all the other things so we got to, I remember we got secret weapons of the Luftwaffe was uh, one of the ones we got in return for a copy of Quest for Glory or Heroes Quest nice song so I like Quest for Glory 2 a lot but one of the, the issues I had with it when I was playing it I remember was that because there's like timed events, each of the um, elementals come after a certain amount of time. When I was playing the game, I couldn't figure out if I was doing, if I was on the right path, and or if I was supposed, supposed to be waiting for something, or if I was doing something wrong. 
So I guess it's, it's you have to sort of see what happens, and then you might have to go back and you know get, take some time to get the items you need potentially or things like that. But during the game, I wish I could have fast forwarded it. <laughs> I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that or. Yeah. Each time we made a game, it was like starting from scratch, and we had some basic ideas what worked, but we didn't know what didn't work. But we were always pushing it to try to see, you know, uh, uh, one thing uh, that I really believe in and why this is a RPG rather than just a straight adventure game is because I think there's more involvement in a, in a role-playing game when you feel like there's something on the line. It isn't just... Think you know, uh, do the wrong thing and you die, which is the standard adventure game thing. But it's like uh, that tension of yes, there is a possibility that you could make the mistake that could kill your character off, gives you a kind of uh, urgency. Uh, urgency and a and a frisson of 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 energy playing those kind of games, and so it's. Uh, it's a very different experience from your standard adventure game. I think it's a different mindset when you actually play it. Yeah, I mean, I think to me, what makes the games really stand out—the Quest for Glory games—just the the richness of the experience and the story. At least for me, like I like Police Quest a lot. But at the end of the day, it's like you're a cop and you go out and your girlfriend gets kidnapped and whatever. Um, <laughs> and King's Quest was very sort of standard fare, and Leisure Suit Larry was Leisure Suit Larry, and Space Quest was. You know, basically a joke. It was a good joke, but it was a joke. Um, Quest for Glory was sort of epic. I mean, I can't explain it better than that, but the whole thing with, I'm not sure you pronounce it now because there's no voice in Quest for Glory 2 if it's Ad Avis or, I wasn't ever sure, Ad Avis or, I, I assume Ad Avis, but <laughs> that, that whole thing with him and then it's Katrina. Ad Avis, okay, thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, yes. So, go ahead. That, <laughs> Quest for Glory 2 was an interesting experience. We had had a great experience at Sierra on Quest for Glory 1. We were all a small team. We were all working in, together in a group. Um, I was more or less put in charge of these people, which, of course, I'd never been in charge of things. I mean, I was a, my background is teaching and not computer science. And uh, so it was an interesting experience. It was great. It was great camaraderie. Well, game number two, the whole situation at Sierra had altered. The whole, um, they needed to figure out a way to handle computer, uh, handle programmers and handle artists so things were on schedule. So they started to bring in management. And uh, as a result, we had a situation where it was getting more and more authoritarian as we went along. And a lot of decisions that were very unpleasant, like for instance, everybody had to um, come in, we had uh, time cards effectively, and you had to punch in your code to get into the buildings, and suddenly what had been all friendly and light suddenly became totally, um, well, it was not pleasant to work. And so, therefore, that is why we have the twin cities of Shapir and Rasir, and Rasir is an anagram of Sierra. And Aravis, the big villain in that, was our uh, art director, Bill Davis. And that's, an, that's, that's his name in there. And, uh, of course, Ka uh, uh, Rick Cavan is as uh, Kavin. And so we were starting to, you know, 
put some of that into the game. And so, yes, Rosier was the situation at Sierra at, at during most of the production. And every game was a totally different experience at Sierra. And by the end of Quest for Glory 2, it was hell to work there. And then Quest for Glory 3 and Quest for Glory 4, for the most part, there were very great times there. So it was always up and down and up and down. And every time we were trying to do something different. And so some things worked and some things didn't. Well, I want to acknowledge Pascal's a little uh, graphic of you there from Police Quest 3, I think that was, where you play the, uh, the doctor who likes to hide under the desk when you go to swipe the, uh, the, the note, the, uh, the folder. <laughs> so you did do some other stuff for Sierra, some little uh, acting bits and things like that. Um, was that uh, fun, or just like we killed you for five minutes to do like a little role? Like, hey, we need someone to do this. Can you come in and do it for a second? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, they asked. Uh, they asked me to uh, dress up that day, and you know, so I, got, I think I did get a day's warning. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, but yeah, they went around the company and basically said, okay, who looks like this character? And uh, ah, Corey would make good uh, psychiatrist, so uh, they brought me in for that. Uh, and Lori actually uh, did voice acting. She was the Ice Queen in uh, King's Quest Five. Is that the one? Five, yeah. Queen Isabella. Queen Isabella. That was Lori. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you know, we used uh, in-house talent for a lot of these, and then uh, when we finally got to do voice acting for the uh, uh, the second time around for uh, Quest for Lori Four, because it initially released as a floppy-based game with no voices, and then uh, uh, the problem is that they released it about, uh, I'd say, six months before the game was actually done. Uh, that it was, uh, it was really terribly buggy. There were a lot of ways to crash the game and so on. That was the, uh, the purple edition. Uh, I like the box cover better than the purple. Uh, but they uh, uh, re-released it the following year uh, in the white box edition uh, with uh, uh, a CD and with full voice acting. We just had an all-star cast. That was a wonderful experience. I actually got to go down to... Uh, uh, North Hollywood and work with uh, Stu Rosen to, uh, you know, to do all the uh, uh, recording of the uh, voice actors. We got uh, John Reese Davis, uh, who plays uh, Gimli, uh, was our narrator, and uh, just uh, 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 Jennifer Hale uh, was uh, Katrina, I think, uh, uh, who later uh, became famous for uh, Halo, I think. Uh, so. Uh, you know, we had just an amazing group of actors. It was a, a lot of fun to go down there and do that. And you guys acted in it too? Uh, no, Stu Rosen okay. actually did a couple minor roles. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was uh, I did the. Uh, uh, I guess I was the producer was the term. So you didn't do the Rusalka, right? Uh, <laughs> no, uh, that was uh, was uh, Joni was Joni Gerber the Rusalka. Uh, she played one of the roles, but yeah, we had a, a bunch of people. If you if you go on IMDb and look up the cast of uh, Quest for Glory Four, uh, you'll find all of them have like you know fifty or hundred entries of uh, different uh, TV shows and movies and stuff they've done uh, uh, acting and voiceover work for. It was a really great uh, uh, team to work with. So by the way, you know the the purple edition, like you said, had a lot of bugs. Um, I never played that one. I played the CD version. But that one was working when it came out, pretty much. But for years later, you couldn't play the game because there's a lot of timer bugs in it. Um, there was game-killing bugs, like when you go out to the to the Mad Monk's tomb. I'm trying to remember the names or everything. And there's two Chernovies 
that are shooting you. They just basically shoot you at a million miles an hour, and you can't like do anything. Can't, they kill you in one second. Yeah, they and, didn't calculate that computers would get actually faster. So therefore, right. the animation got sped up as the computers got sped up, and uh, so we couldn't catch up with the game. And that also happened in Quest for Glory 3, when at one point you go into the Laban's hut, and he says, what can I do for you, friend of Rakesh? And then you you can't answer him. He right away says it again. What can I do for you? And the game thinks like you're ignoring him, so it starts decreasing your honor. And basically, if you're a paladin, <laughs> you're trying to become a paladin, you can't do it because you have no honor once you're done with that I conversation. I have not heard that problem before. <laughs> yeah, I had that one. And, and at the time, Sierra was still active. And we tried to, like, contact Sierra and say, hey, you know, and they said, there's no way to fix these problems. They're just unfixable. They're just, you know, it's impossible to fix them. And then years and years later, some very clever gentleman by the name of New Rising Sun, I was his alias, I have no idea what his real name is, he patched all the games just by creating, like, um, I guess SCR files, which I guess are the, I think those are the, those are the extension. They're, they patch the regular scripts in the game. And he patched all those timer bugs and, and fixed all the games. Now they work perfectly, so it's, it's amazing. So I was always like amazed Sierra couldn't do it, but this guy who never worked for Sierra probably, you know, I reverse engineered it and figured it out. So, <laughs> Well, you have to remember uh, time pressure, uh, that uh, people were actually being paid at Sierra, although it was pittance. Uh, but, uh, you know, we basically the standard at Sierra was for a game to come out in less than a year. And uh, Heroes Quest... Uh, uh, we made the deal in uh, you know sometime in mid uh, 1988, but uh, uh, the team didn't actually the development team wasn't assigned to it until January of '89. Uh, the game came uh, came out in October '89, so you can see that was uh, nine months to do an entire game, nine ten months, uh, uh, including testing and everything else. Uh, and I think we got uh, Quest for Glory 2 out took 11 months, and that was considered late. It was behind schedule by Sierra standards. Uh, but these games were really rushed out very quickly, uh, so you know it's quite likely that uh, you know something had a timing problem, uh, you know would not be discovered. And of course, a lot of these timing problems didn't show up until five years later when machines got a lot faster. Uh, so yeah. we had a, a problem with the uh, the remake of Quest for Glory One when they went to BGA. Uh, the uh, original script called for the graveyard. Uh, for you to be, you know, be able to enter the scene, and then you could see the uh, ghost would start floating towards you, and if you hadn't used the undead when you had to get out of there. Uh, what happened uh, in the VGA remake is, if you haven't already used the undead when before you get into the scene, the ghost catch you and you die, uh, and that was a timing bug. Uh, similarly, in the uh, uh, the brigands' cafeteria at the end of the game, uh, you know, we had very tightly worked out uh, scripting so that. Uh, you had enough time, uh, you know, especially because it was typed commands, uh, to be able to type in the right commands at the right times in order to uh, be able to get through that. Uh, and in the, uh, uh, the VGA version of the game, uh, it becomes a Twitch game. You've got to quit really quickly in order to get things done. Uh, so uh, that stuff, you know, it just, it just never got enough uh, testing. And it certainly didn't get test, testing on computers that hadn't been invented at the time. Yeah, and I remember that very clearly, just getting knocked off that thing by Yorick, like, over and over and over again. <laughs> just trying to click, click, click into the door, you couldn't do it, so it's still, still fun, though. <laughs> I was going to say, as creators, uh, how do you guys feel about people, like, patching patching your work and, you know, all these, like, you know, modern gamers like to kind of tinker and monkey with them? 
games. How how does you as as a unique experience for me to be able to talk to someone who actually created something? So I'm just curious. Well, we love it. I mean, we think the only way these games are going to stay alive and they're going to be an art form is if they evolve as they go along, and that really requires somebody who cares about them to actually put some time and fix them so that they work. And also, uh, you know, fan remakes and so on. We have no problem with it. You know, as I say, I, I tell people it would be better if they did their own work, but, uh, you know, if they want to use Quest for Glory as a base, that's just perfectly fine. Uh, Quest for Glory 4.5, uh, you know, no problem with it, but it just, uh, uh, we just didn't think it was written very well. So <laughs> it was silly. Yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, it was the obscene one, but, uh, you know, it wasn't the silliness that bothered me or the obscenity. Uh, it was just the fact that the writing was not, was not tight enough. A lot of uh, bugs, too, by the way. <laughs> much, more, much more bugs uh, than your game. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you look at, like, the uh, VGA remake of uh, Quest for Glory 2. Uh, and if you look beginning to end of that project, I think it uh, stretched over ten years. Uh, and people came and left the team, and uh, they, you know, they started and abandoned it two or three times, and then, I, you know, amazingly, they actually got the game out, and it was really good. Uh, but uh, you know, that was a that was a true labor of love, and we think that's just awesome. Uh, we don't get any royalties from that, but we don't we don't get any royalties from the original games either. Uh, Sierra stopped uh, uh, by an amazing coincidence. Uh, mm -hmm. The Quest for Glory 1 to 5 collection showed up on GOG.com uh, two months after our royalty, royalty agreement with Sierra expired. <laughs> Amazing. Not very nice. <laughs> well, you know, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, they needed a remake that much. I mean, like, they remade King's Quest. They didn't even re remake it in EGA at the time. They, they did an EGA, an SCI remake. But the original King's Quest was basically unplayable before they remade it at that point. Leisure Suit Larry was also AGI. Space Quest was AGI. Um, Police Quest was AGI, and then Quest for Glory 1 was not AGI, it was SCI, if I remember correctly. And it, it stands up pretty well today. Just both versions you can play, and they're both playable, they're both fun, whereas some of the other ones you needed to remake. The VGA remake of Quest for Glory 1 is probably one of the most beautiful games ever created, artistically and otherwise, just because the I don't think it's ever been really um, uh, done better, especially the... Uh, the claymation little dudes, which was just a great idea, and it translates really well. I could sit down and play that now, and, and it wouldn't even seem to be not not a modern experience to me. Yeah, it is, it is pretty beautiful. Yeah, we actually uh, uh, had a discussion with uh, one of the executives at Sierra, and basically said, so are we going to do a remake of Quest for Glory 2? And they said no. Uh, and that basically they had discovered, or they had worked out that it was much more profitable to make a new game uh, than to uh, do a remake of an older one because it took almost the same amount of time and effort to do the remake as it did to do the original game. Right. Um, and they could do it. They could do a new game. You know, just so much of the time was put into art and so on that uh, uh, that was really about the same as uh, you know as with doing a new game. Uh, but what they told us, uh, they told me was that uh, all of every one of the remakes had been uh, failures, selling like 25,000 copies. They were not market successful by Sierra standards, except for Quest for Glory 1 VGA. And they said that was the uh, you know the exception that proved the rule that it had sold like 150,000 copies, uh, and uh, probably actually sold more in the VGA version than the original. But they said all of their other uh, uh, VGA remakes failed, and so they decided to you know as a company policy they weren't going to do those anymore. 
I wonder how much that was because people didn't realize it was, it was a remake because the, the name changed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, a new game. That's for Glory 1. <laughs> Hopefully that I think that probably had something to do with it, actually. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I don't want to talk... I guess probably nobody wants to talk about the later dark ages of Sierra when everything went sour. And Unless you guys want to talk about it. I, I, I think that's been covered you know, to a great extent in other you know, interviews and things like that. And and probably not, not memories you want to dredge up anyway, so... Well, internally, it didn't feel like that, you know, depending which Dark Ages you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> but in the uh, the late uh, the late 90s, yeah, late 90s, uh, when we did uh, uh, Quest for Glory 5, you know, there have been a lot of complaints from people that say, well, Quest for Glory 5 is not a proper Quest for Glory game, and so on, it's, it's just no good. Uh, and what Quest for Glory 5 was, uh, uh, they had problems with the art process that resolved in... Uh, really unpleasant-looking uh, 3D art, but otherwise, the game really is the culmination of the series. Writing-wise, it's got you know more to it than any of the previous games. Uh, we had the uh, Lori had the leisure of the fact that they took three and a half years to make the game that uh, she was able to keep writing and refining and so on during that entire time. Um, so story-wise, you know, uh, Quest for Glory 5 really deserves a remake in uh, either modern uh, 3D or in a painted. Uh, uh, format because the uh, the artwork killed it. Uh, originally, about okay, so when they first started the project, uh, I was in meetings with the uh, the team there, and they said, okay, are we going to use SCI as we did for all the previous games, or are we going to come up with a new engine based in C++? Uh, because SCI is really dated by now, uh, and we came to the conclusion that, and I remembered back when we did Quest for Glory two. Uh, that we had had, uh, you know, that we were Sierra's very last 16-color uh, EGA game, and that really hurt the game, that uh, people were only buying 256-color games by the time it came out. So remembering that, I said, well, we really don't want to be seen as an old, out-of-date game, uh, you know, so let's, uh, let's redo the engine. Uh, and the, uh, about six months into the project, uh, we had a presentation from a, a couple of uh, Russian guys who had created uh, tools for doing uh, uh, voxel graphics. And a voxel basically is a, uh, it's, it's a volumetric 3D. It's not like a triangle. It's, a, it's just a totally different approach to 3D. And we looked at it and said, hey, this is really nice. This is you know, very organic and uh, uh, very smooth, and uh, it works at any magnification and so on. Uh, but Sierra didn't want to pay the fifty thousand or hundred thousand license of product, uh, so they uh, the uh, lead programmer of the team said, "Oh, I can do that. I can make a voxel engine," uh, and he did. But there's a difference between a voxel engine made in house for one game and one that is the entire business of the company. Uh, so we had a perfectly working uh, voxel engine, but it was not optimized and tuned the way the Russian one was. Uh, and a year and a half into the project, uh, we finally got to really serious testing and discovered that uh, uh, as soon as the characters got close to the player and the voxels got larger, it ate up so much processing power that the game started moving like three frames a second. Uh, and it was, it was just basically became unpl- unplayable on anything except the absolute top-end machines. Uh, and we had a panicked uh, meeting, and the final conclusion was the same lead programmer says, oh, don't worry, I can make a, uh, a 3D polygon engine that'll be faster. And he did. He was, you know, just amazing. And that actually, uh, that was Eric Lingell. And that engine uh, turned into C4, which is a fairly popular 3D engine now. Uh, that 
but uh, uh, you know, all the stuff was done in house, and you know, both cases was they didn't want to they didn't want to license Unreal, they didn't want to license the other thing, and you know, with the uh, the virtual 2020 hindsight, we would have been much better off. Paying a couple hundred thousand dollars to license a uh, off-the-shelf engine, uh, and then you get up to Hero U, of course, where there was no way we could pay a hundred thousand dollars for an engine, but Unity was fifteen hundred a seat, so it was about ten thousand to hundred thousand for our licenses. Well, what I meant by like the dark times, if I remember correctly, and correct me where my memory is wrong, there was a bunch of games being developed in Sierra around that time, and. The only one that really came through unscathed was Quest for Glory 5. It's like Space Quest 7 was canceled completely. There was um, Mask of Eternity, I guess, came out, but it was not, people were not very happy with it. It was a completely different style of game, that's King's Quest. Then there was, um, what's the other one I'm thinking of? Uh, oh, yeah, Gabriel Knight 3, which yeah. was sort of a disaster. <laughs> from some that was just very interesting because what had happened was, of course, that before Quest for Glory 5, uh, was started. It uh, the Sierra had split and had gone up north. The main company and what was left, they eventually called Yosemite Entertainment, which is the shirt Corey's currently wearing. And what happened was Gabriel Knight and King's Quest and Quest for Glory were all being developed simultaneously by three different groups, and all three groups um, were developing their own engine to do a 3D game, so there was no sharing between any of the companies. We were all effectively separate divisions of, of Sierra, and there was no contact. We were physically, you know, miles from each other. And so each was made in its own little, uh, you know, company. And I don't think, frankly, that quest, uh, the King's Quest problem was that Roberta and Ken were really not involved. That and. So there was nobody there that had the quality control that that game needed that said, okay, this doesn't look like a King's Quest or it doesn't feel like a King's Quest. I think that would have made a big difference. And likewise, uh, with uh, Gabriel Knight, that was this whole little you know group, and they had to struggle the same way we did. And it turns out, just like we did, they had to throw away two engines before they settled on a third engine. And it's just like, and it was somebody else making it. So we were all in that same situation. And as a result, we're fighting technology. And that makes, you know, when you're struggling with that, the design and things come secondary. And that's what happens. Yeah, we uh, actually met with one of the lead developers from uh, uh, Mask of Eternity at a, uh, a game conference. And he said basically uh, that uh, they'd gone through, he just, like the story I told about the voxel engine and stuff, he told an almost identical story. They'd gone through exactly the same things uh, up in Seattle doing uh, King's Quest, and they had uh, ro done the roll-your-own-game engine. It took them forever. The big strength of Sierra when we first started there, uh, uh, we actually uh, came in after AGI. We were at the beginning of the SCI era, uh, and I collaborated a little bit on the early versions of SCI, but uh, not much. Uh, but I did the Atari ST conversion that later became the Amiga and Macintosh uh, version of the interpreter. I was going to say, so the big strength we had was that everybody, all the projects used that same uh, set of tools, and we, you know, we could make uh, graphics using the same graphics tools. Uh, we put together the game, everyone was using the same scripting language. So you could move people between one team and another fairly freely because they all knew how to do the stuff. Uh, 
And we didn't have this whole reinventing the wheel on every single project. Uh, in a sense, we did, uh, because as they kept doing new SCI versions so on. For, for us as designers, uh, the process was different every project. But you know, really, for the building the game, uh, it was pretty similar. Uh, so there were a lot of uh, uh, you know, cost savings. And if you're saving costs on the development tools, that means you can put the money into the, the game design and the artwork, which is where it matters. Uh, so that's you know I think that's kind of why CR games were so strong in the uh, in the 90s. Uh, by the end of the 90s, uh, you know, they were saying, well, these these tools you know reach the end of their, their lifespan. But instead of uh, having a central tools group that uh, made tools for all three divisions of Sierra, uh, each one you know each team did their own. In fact, I think in some cases two teams in the same location did their own uh, tools, uh, and it was just uh, very inefficient. Yeah, I mean, Roberta um, used to give interviews at the time and said things like, oh, yeah, this is the game I wanted to do, and it's very exciting to do at more action, but you don't really know how much of that was real and how much of that was well, I don't know. Maybe you do. <laughs> how much of that was real I, and how I, much of that I will, was real. You know, I will contradict uh, what Laurie said earlier. I think Roberta was actually very heavily involved in, uh, in that game. Uh, but you have to understand what it means for Roberta be, to be involved in a game as opposed to Laurie to be involved in a game, not the same thing. Uh, Roberta, you know, is the, the wife of the company president and so on, uh, that what she would do is she would sit at home and uh, uh, draw things and do little write-ups and things. She had, uh, you know, for the King's Quest, it was all based on fairy tales. Uh, so she actually had a list of, of uh, tropes and ideas from fairy tales, names of fairy tales, uh, and she literally, as she was designing a game, would go through her list. It was a single piece of paper that she kept working on for 20 years. Uh, that she would uh, uh, check off each of the ones that she used it just to make sure that she didn't use the same thing in uh, more than one game. Uh, and, but then she would give basically uh, you know, a sketched out map and she would uh, have a meeting with the development team and would kind of uh, you know, tell the story of what the game was trying to do uh, and uh, give them you know, very little written documentation at all and then the team would go off and actually make the game. So uh, all the details, all the writing and so on uh, inside the games uh, was mostly done by the teams. Whereas on uh, Heroes Quest and Quest for Glory, um, Lori had a much tighter reign. So she directed the team. She was in-house uh, every day or almost every day. Uh, and uh, you know, we basically got a tool developed for us called the Message Editor that allowed her to, uh, you know, after the first game, uh, that allowed her to enter text uh, and dialogue directly into the game. And so the incidental messages, if you look at a tree or climb a tree or something, those messages were probably written by either me or a programmer. Uh, but all of the character dialogue was written by Lori. So it's uh, just, you know, we had a much tighter degree of control over our games than, uh, than Roberta <laughs> did over hers. And that's, that just comes down to work style. It seemed like from the outside that... Quest for Glory 5 was in danger of being canceled a whole bunch of times. I mean, it's like the fans were lobbying to keep it alive, and did, did that really happen, or is that just uh, outside well, perspective? Uh, rather than danger of being canceled, Quest for Glory 5 was canceled. We had a, a, uh, a three-game three contract with Steer at the time, and I can't remember, Quest for Glory 4 was either the first or second game of the uh, contract, and uh, Sierra had uh, uh, the Black Friday or something like that, Black Monday, this was a Friday, uh, called, uh, called everybody into the movie theater in town and uh, laid off half of the company. And then he called Lori and me into his office 
and said, well, you know, I guess, you know, it's coming is, uh, you know, we're canceling Quest for Glory 5 and, uh, uh, you know, we're not going to need your services anymore. Uh, and then came the grass, uh, grassroots letter writing campaign, and it was letters back then. The email was not really a thing at the time. Uh, and just uh, thousands of people wrote in and said, you've got to do Quest for Glory 5. Uh, and when, uh, after Sierra split between the two locations, Craig Alexander, who's the uh, general manager of, uh, of the Yosemite Entertainment branch, uh, called us back in and said, uh, uh, now Lori will tell the story slightly differently. That's close. Uh, uh, actually, they called us back in to have a meeting on a game called The Realm, which is their multiplayer game, and they wanted to rebrand The Realm as uh, uh, the world of Quest of Glory. Uh, and uh, tried to see whether we could do design for that, and those talks, those talks turned into uh, saying, "Well, why don't you guys do Quest for Glory 5? Uh, the problem is they didn't actually commit to it. They said we're considering it, and I at the time was uh, working elsewhere, <coughs> and had a choice between a very lucrative job in the San Francisco Bay Area, or uh, basically doing contract work with uh, for Sierra for a few months, and afterwards finding out if they were actually going to pay us for anything." Uh, so I went off to the other place. Lori started doing Quest for Glory 5 with them. Uh, I ended up uh, quitting the other job after about eight months and uh, uh, came back in a year into uh, the development of Quest for Glory 5. Uh, and at that point, uh, they were about to release the game, or so they thought. Uh, it was running late. They'd missed Christmas. They were going to uh, uh, release it in uh, March. And I came in and discovered that uh, the system programmer had built a prototype of uh, a multiplayer engine for it and so on. Uh, but nobody had actually looked at the 500 pages of documentation Lori had written. So none of the story, none of, none of the uh, character interactions or any of that was in the game. I said, you're not going to be done with this in three years. You're not, you're not going to be done in a year. Uh, and it actually took another uh, two and a half years, or two years after that point before they released the game. So let's, um, let's fast forward, actually, to um, what you're currently working on. Talk a little bit about the, the game you're working on and maybe what are the differences between uh, what you used to do with Sierra and the challenges of what's going on with uh, game development now? Sounds like a, an interesting thing to talk about, yes. Um, well, Hero U was a, uh, a, a, another one of those uh, games that evolved beyond what we intended originally. Um, initially, when we were... Uh, uh, thinking about it, we wanted a simple game, a small puzzle game that would allow us to actually get it done in a reasonable amount of time and uh, actually, you know, get some money in some time. And so, therefore, we started out with this idea of, of creating it as a uh, top-down puzzle and uh, with a lot of roguelike characteristics. And uh, we tried to... Uh, our first Kickstarter started out with that in mind, and as we saw who was attracted to the game, it wasn't this new audience who wanted to play that kind of game. It was the old fans, or the, the fans that had found Quest for Glory over the years, and they really wanted another Quest for Glory more than anything else. Well, as a result, so our, we started to decide that to change the game so that it was what the fans wanted rather than necessarily the simple game that we were starting out with. And so therefore we wanted to create a game that was taking the best of Quest for Glory with some of the things we had learned along the way and some of the things we wanted to do. So therefore rather than have an, 
anonymous character that's the main character that allows it to be the, the uh, avatar of the player, we wanted to give them a chance to really role play somebody else. And uh, like Monkey Island, you'll find that when you play Monkey Island, you're pretty much immersed in Guybrush Three Chords world, you know, and, and who he is. So in this case, we are doing the same thing. You're going to be immersed in this world that Sean O'Connor is stuck in, and you'll learn more about him and his past, and you'll learn, uh, and you'll affect what his future will be in the course of the game. But like Quest for Glory, there's a lot of choices. There's a lot of uh, variations between what you can do with him and how you can develop his future with the kind of skill-based things that we had in Quest for Glory. So. Um, it'll have skill development, and um, you might want to, you know, you might be into the combat things, and, and so therefore you'll you'll increase his combat skill, or you'll do a lot of hunting down in the uh, dungeons for monsters. And uh, on the other hand, if you prefer adventure games, there's an awful lot of adventure game going on in the game. So. It's really adapting to what the fans want to play and allowing the, plan the, the fans, the players, to enjoy the game in multiple different ways. What about the character interactions? There's a lot of character interactions. You can have a romance with uh, many of the characters in the game, but it becomes a, um, a puzzle in and of itself because you have to build up a rapport with those characters. Nobody particularly likes Sean at the beginning of the game. He's this outsider coming into it, and he's poor, and he's kind of dirty and off the streets. And so Sean has to evolve and have to change as he gets going along the way. And, uh, and eventually he can make friends, and he can actually have you know meaningful relationships with people as a result of how you play the game. Or you could just make everybody your enemy and just piss them all off because that's part of the game too. It's you know you're in control and you're the one that that chooses where Sean goes in his life. I have a, I have a, a maybe a hard question. It's an easy question, but maybe a hard answer. Are are you making it in Hero You? I mean, it's a general question about the games you made in the past. Do you tend to make games that? you want to play, games that you think the fans want, games that, um, you know, just your artistic creation popping out of you. I know when you worked at Sierra, it was sort of make what the suits tell you to make it to some extent. But now that no, you're no, that was not true. Oh, okay. Sierra never told us what to make. Sierra never looked at our games. Sierra never paid any attention to what we were doing. So we had create, complete creative control other than the fact we had a team. And that team was whatever Sierra chose it to be. And so therefore, a lot of cases, we adapted to the strengths of the team. The, uh, the strengths of the team in Quest for Glory 1 really, really altered the whole course of the series. It would have been a straightforward, uh, semi, I mean, really serious game, which is what we were starting out with, until we had an artist, you know, we had artists that were more cartoony, and that was it. It was not gelling with the idea of a straight game. And we had a great creative programmer, Bob Fishbach, who liked to put in puns. And that didn't go with a straight game. So we adapted to that situation, and that's what 
uh, created Quest for Glory. So it was a collaboration of team people and eventually what came out was a great piece. Likewise, what we're doing with Hero You, yes, most of it's, you know, the, the story and the characters are mine, but they're really adapting to who's on the team, what's working, what's, what's the strengths of the people there. And I am trying to create a game that I would enjoy, first of all. It's got to be, you got to love it. you got to say, oh yeah, this is great, I really want to play this. You're not not playing for a creating for this abstract person you have to say this feels right to me but likewise you're trying to collaborate and create a, something with these with your player it's not about what do I you know what should the player do it's what will the player want to do in this situation you have to take your step out of the designer role and into the players point of view and say if I'm in this situation what am I going to try what will it feel right what what needs to to be put into the game so the player feels like they're the ones in control and not the designer uh, but uh, oh, I was actually going to was going to talk about the difference between tabletop uh, role playing and uh, making a computer game, uh, and then I'll get back to the uh, new question. But uh, uh, when you're uh, game master, dungeon master for a, a tabletop game, uh, players, you know, you'll you'll spend all this time in advance uh, planning out all the things the players can do, and then as soon as you set the players down in front of it, they'll do a fifth thing or a sixth thing that you never thought of. Uh, so you really have to think in your feet. And there's really two major parts to being a dungeon master, one of which is uh, creating the scenarios, which I was always good at, and the other one is uh, actually running the game, which was probably my weak point, uh, you know, and because uh, you had to, you know, think on the fly and come up with ideas and so on. Uh, and that actually ties into Joel's question as well, uh, but we'll get back to that. Uh, so in terms of making a computer game, you have to pre-think everything. You have to basically say, here are all the things we're going to handle. Uh, and what I've always wanted to do uh, was to have a build-in reporting mechanism, and we may actually still have time to do that in Hero, Hero U, I don't know, uh, where when we go into beta test, uh, that uh, uh, every single menu will have do something else, and then players will be able to fill in the blanks and say what they want to do, and that will be reported to us uh, as something that players wanted to have in the menu, and then we can take the best of them and add them into the game. Obviously, if we do that, it'll add a tremendous amount of time and effort to the development. But uh, you know, that's a way that I think we might be able to collaborate with the players a little bit to make something they want and not just something that we think is cool. Um, in practice, you know, we've never had luxury. So that ties into Kickstarter because in Kickstarter, uh, you're basically up there with the community, very actively uh, in your face and posting comments all the time. And a lot of those comments are negative, and those are not necessarily troll comments. Uh, they're basically people that really have a problem with something you're doing. And you have to step back from it and say, okay, uh, is this guy a troll uh, or a troublemaker or do they really have a point? You know, is, uh, are we doing something wrong that we should fix? And one of the important things to us as being uh, game designers, you need the ego to believe that you know, what you're doing is good and is worth doing. But at the same time, you need the humility to listen to people and say, yeah, you know, okay, maybe they have a better idea. And we've gotten some really good ideas from fans and from uh, you know other developers and team and so on. And we try to be good about listening to that and incorporating it whenever we can. Uh, so you know, a lot of stuff that was in, uh, uh, as Laurie was saying, you know, in the original Heroes Quest, Bob Fishbach was uh, 
uh, the original programmer that uh, set up a lot of the rooms for us, and he started putting in uh, puns on things. Uh, and uh, you know, at the same time, we had uh, Jeff Crow did the uh, initial artwork for the town, and uh, originally we hated it. Uh, we thought this is just real bright, and and uh, uh, you know, there's no subtlety to it. It's not good art. Uh, but uh, you know, first of all, that got cleaned up, so it uh, it's not worked much better. Uh, but second, you know, we adapted to realize, yeah, this actually does fit with that mood of the game as being a humorous game rather than a serious one. And the fact that we got very uh, cartoony animations for the, uh, you know, the sheriff and the goon and so on, we said, okay, obviously uh, we didn't know it, we're making a humorous game here, and we adapted the script to, uh, to, to match what the artwork was. Uh, there's a lot of feedback like that, and Kickstarter's the same way. You get a lot of feedback from people. Uh, and as far as the team is concerned, it hasn't had much impact on that. Our programmers are still programming. Our uh, artists are still making art. As far as Lori and I are concerned, uh, probably you know 80% of our time over the last month has been devoted to writing the Kickstarter. So we're not doing any writing or much. We're not doing much writing. Uh, uh, we are directing the team still, uh, but uh, you know most of our time is uh, spent uh, you know answering questions in the Kickstarter. Uh, I was planning on doing a uh, update every day or two on it, and in practice, uh, you know, through the middle of it, I was doing an update about once a week. Uh, because that's just basically all the time I could find to write those things. Uh, part of the problem, of course, is that most people, when they write an update, write a couple paragraphs, and uh, when I write an update, I write a short story. <laughs> so, so I just have one question. Back for a second, then we'll go forward again to Kickstarter. A technical question for you, Corey. You mentioned the tabletop games. You never knew what the guy was going to do. I know sometimes in the Sierra games, you do something, they don't say, oops, you did something we didn't think of. And then it would like exit the game, and I always wondered if they're able to trap that error to the point they could put up a message that said "Oops." Why couldn't they just say, "Don't do that again" and just continue the game? Basically, <laughs> is there any reason for that? Well, I'm just curious. Yes, yes, there is a reason for that. Uh, and they were trying to be uh, acute with the messages. Uh, they didn't want it to sound all computerish. Is why they phrased it that way. Uh, but there were actually uh, two levels of error messages. The one you got far, far more often was the message that said. Uh, uh, I don't understand, or you can't do that uh, right now, or I'm not sure what you're trying to do, and different variations of that. Uh, and with the parser-based games, uh, we had tons of those because, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is that we had programmed in that people might type, uh, you have to remember that the all of the assets uh, uh, for uh, the game at any given time had to live in a single 64K uh, memory block on the PC. Uh, it was a you know it's a segmented memory, and you had one memory segment for everything: all the system code, all the uh, uh, the game code, uh, the instructions, the memory, the data. Uh, I think they even had the graphics in there originally on the uh, on the 16 color games. Uh, so you did not have enough memory to do much of anything. Uh, this I was actually really shocked when I went back and looked at some of those old scripts and said, you know, this thing, you know, that was a, a really rich filling room and that script is 100 lines long. How did they do that? <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the commands we had in the parser version, uh, I think it was called speak or something like that, uh, and that was the command that basically said interpret what the player has typed. And we would have maybe three or four or half a dozen options for what the player could type in a given situation. And somehow we had to make it so that the game felt rich enough that players felt like everything they typed in was handled. Uh, whereas in reality, probably 
five or ten percent of what you could type in was handled, if that. Uh, so that was the first level of error, and, and you saw that all the time in parser games, and we were mostly able to get rid of those once we went to the point and click, because now we only showed you the things we wanted you to do. Uh, the other error that said, oops, uh, what that meant was that the game had detected a really serious problem. Uh, there had been, uh, you know, a pointer had been trashed or something like that, and the game had no idea why. It just knew that the data was corrupt. And mm. so when it saw the data was corrupt, it would crash the game rather than uh, go on and you know, let it get worse and worse. Uh, Quest for Glory 2, we had a problem with the, uh, uh, the, the jackals or whatever they were called, out of the desert, uh, in that uh, every time you fought that battle, uh, it... Uh, uh, it, uh, there was a memory leak, which basically wasted a little bit of that 64K of memory. So uh, you would not notice the problem at all until you got to the end game in uh, Rasir, and you were fighting your way through the palace, and then all of a sudden you get an oops error. Uh, and what that oops error had meant was that throughout the course of the game, every time you fought the jackal wares in the desert, uh, you had lost uh, 10 or 20 bytes of memory, and that by the end of the game there wasn't enough memory to run the extremely memory-intensive end game anymore. So that's what Oops is, and that's why I could not uh, uh, fix it. I was curious, both of you guys. So Kickstarter has been officially a success. It's been funded. Obviously, there's more stretch goals to go, and I still would like to know if we need to get to 200k to get the voice acting, or if there's like some bad voice acting option. <laughs> Maybe like uh, you know, okay. like, that's fine. <laughs> uh, when but, we first started this game out, our son Michael, uh, who's uh, doing our marketing direction for us, said, "Do not put voice in this game." And the reason is that he's played a lot of uh, shareware and inexpensive uh, games, and he says almost universally the voice acting is terrible and it ruins an otherwise good game. So he basically said, you know, with the caveat that if the voice acting is great, it improves the game, uh, but great voice acting can cost fifty dollars or $100,000 or more. Uh, so you'll notice that our last two stretch goals of the Kickstarter uh, are uh, $20,000 each uh, for... Uh, uh, localization and for voice acting, and those are not the true costs of those things. They'll actually cost us about forty to fifty thousand to do either of those. Uh, but uh, basically, if we have that much interest in the game and we get that far in the stretch goals, we'll find a way to come up with that money. Uh, yeah, Josh Mandel could do it. Uh, but actually, I, I read a review recently that panned the voice acting in King's Quest V, and that was the one that was done uh, uh, with, you know, semi-pro, uh, but it was all done uh, with. Uh, uh, community people in Oakhurst and people that worked with Sierra and people that lived in the community. And they did uh, formal auditions for it. Uh, and uh, there's Josh. Uh, well, he's no longer in Austin, Texas. He's up in the uh, Northeast. Uh, uh, that, you know, we had some really good uh, voice actors there. Lori and I are terrible voice actors, as we learned when we uh, did the voiceovers for the uh, first Kickstarter campaign video. <laughs> uh, or at least for bad screen actors. Uh, we, we don't memorize our lines well, etc. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, so amateur voice acting can just t totally kill a good game. Yeah, well, yeah. in the case of, uh, you know, uh, the Space Adventures guys, uh, Chris Pope, who has been instrumental in getting that g game up and running, uh, he has, uh, he's also has voice actors. He's sort of an agent for voice actors. And so if we do it, we will have pros and we will get a good team. And I really would love it because I and there's nothing more fun than doing voice recording. You get these people into the studio, and you see just how phenomenal a voice actor can be. Um, in the case of 
Quest for Glory 5, I got to be involved with some of it when they did the voice acting. And um, in the case of the character that was doing um, the voice of Wolfie, Wolfie is the, uh, the doggy character there that speaks like uh, he, the Indian gentleman from uh, Short Circuit, if you ever saw that movie. Um, he had a very interesting way of talking. He had a way of uh, creating sentences that were just fun and bizarre. So I put that into this Wolfie character and had this actor come in off the streets with, you know, it was always cold. They never saw the script before he get, got it. I explained what we were trying to do with him and cold, he could read those lines with this crazy sort of Indian accent and saying all, you know, totally bizarre things and just, just knock it out of the park. Likewise with the Gnome Anne we got, we had to, we actually re-recorded Gnome Anne because the first actress just didn't get it, but then when this other actress came in and she started reading those insane lines that Gnome Anne has as fast as possible without flubbing the lines and without tangling her tongue as she went into them, it was just such a thrill to get to hear these pros really do it because it really brings these characters to life. Well, I sure hope we get there. I couldn't care less about um, vo uh, localization because I'm selfish, mm -hmm. but uh, <laughs> I do want voice acting. Um, so the question I guess I have for you guys is now that you're, we are where we are and we, we still have it, the campaign's not over yet, but you've technically succeeded, are you happy? Are you excited? Are you trying to you anxious because you didn't get, you want to get more? I mean, how do you guys feel well, right now? Yeah, we're, we're excited and thrilled that people responded uh, to that. Uh, unfortunately, I spent about half of the campaign uh, uh, wasted in explaining why we had to come back to the well and why we needed more money. And it was only, you know, then as we started doing more research, we discovered that uh, Kickstarter is a big lie, uh, that every one of those big projects uh, has ended up uh, finding other sources of money besides Kickstarter. Uh, whereas we, what we were told when we started out uh, you know, especially, you know, Tim Schafer had all these ideals when he was doing uh, Double Fine Adventure and so on, is he felt that he had a moral obligation to the people that supported him on Kickstarter that the game needed to be made exclusively with Kickstarter money. Well, what happened, of course, is that uh, he asked for $400,000, he got $3.3 and then a year into production discovered $3.3 wasn't going to be enough to make the game he wanted to make. Uh, and so they ended up having to, uh, you know, cannibalize other projects, come out with uh, early access and a lot of other things, uh, release half the game in order to be able to finish the game. Uh, so basically, uh, no major game in Kickstarter has ever uh, gone out solely under the minimum budget that they asked for. Uh, and part of that is because Kickstarter is all or nothing funding. If you ask for a million dollars and get 900,000, you get zero. If you ask for 100,000 and you get 500,000, you get all the 500,000. And so people always ask for less money than they actually uh, want to get. Our first campaign, we asked for 400000 and we thought we could do our little top-down uh, roguelike for that, and probably could have, uh, but uh, that lasted all of a month and a half before the uh, uh, lead developer uh, quit when he got a full-time contract for four times as much as we were paying him. Uh, and, uh, you know, had to support his family, had no choice. Uh, so at that point, we reinvented and said, well, you know, the fans want a Quest for Glory-like game, Let's do that, you know, full speed ahead, damn the torpedoes. Uh, and there have been a lot of torpedoes along the way. So uh, 
the uh, this one effectively what we did is we dipped into personal funds we uh, mortgaged our house and so on in order to uh, continue development and we could see that by the end of the project we were going to have every credit card maxed out and everything else and if we had a one month overrun we'd be in trouble so this Kickstarter basically takes the pressure off that uh, it does not get us out of debt what it does is it uh, uh, gives us another hundred thousand dollars of cash flow uh, that uh, that says we don't have to touch loans and such until we've run through that hundred thousand, uh, and that gives us enough leeway that we know that we can get to the uh, you know the uh, final goal. Uh, but yeah, we're we're majorly into this game. If the, you know if, if we don't find uh, a lot of adventure game players buying it when it comes out, we're going to be personally in financial trouble. But the game will come out. And we needed to pay people along the way. You know, there are a lot of people that are on our team that uh, really are not, you know, making that much money, and we have to make sure that they get their money. Um, some of the people on the programming team are working other jobs, and they can support themselves other ways. So some people are taking deferred payments to after we ship, and but uh, other people they need the money now. Uh, we've heard the same thing uh, referring to uh, uh, authors of books, uh, that uh, you get the advance from the publisher and it's never enough to live on. Uh, you know, a typical advance might for a first-time author might be $3,000. Uh, and you might spend six months or a year writing and refining that book uh, for that uh, $3,000. And what you hope is that the game will uh, magically break out and become a bestseller, but very few of them do. Uh, so most authors... Uh, you know, most starting authors now can only do it if they're either students uh, uh, or they're living at home with uh, their parents or their family or they have a spouse that's supporting them while they do it. Uh, and indie games are the same way. That uh, When you see, uh, you know, one of these indie games come out with a thirty or $40,000 uh, Kickstarter uh, and somehow they seem like they're able to make the game, well, first of all, a lot of them fail. Uh, but the ones that succeed are succeeding because uh, they, you know, the that money is not funding their life. Uh, they are not paying their grocery bills or not paying their mortgage on the money from Kickstarter. It's only being used for things like licensing. If they're using professional voice talent, then they'll do that. They may have to uh, license or buy some art uh, or other assets. And so uh, they only spend, you know, the actual cost of the game is probably a half million dollars or more. Uh, but they can do it in a very small budget because uh, they're supporting themselves and the team members are working for free. So one of the ones I heard about was there's a, uh, um, a game that was inspired by Quest for Glory uh, uh, from uh, Infamous Quest. I think it's called Quest for Infamy. Uh, and I haven't actually played it, but I heard it's a pretty good game. Uh, and that one had a budget of like thirty dollars or $40,000. Uh, and I recently talked to the lead programmer and uh, uh, basically said, yeah, I've got a full-time job and uh, I've not been paid anything for this game. Uh, you know, personally, I'm hoping that he'll eventually get some royalties from it. Uh, but basically, all the people working the team were volunteers, so they were able to do a full, uh, you know, full-scale adventure game for a lot less than the game actually cost. If that makes any sense. Uh, so yeah. we're the same ways. So our four hundred thousand from Kickstarter, uh, you know, after all the fees and uh, doing the rewards we promised and so on, is we get about two hundred seventy-five thousand of that, and out of this uh, hundred thousand, we'll get about seventy thousand, you know, plus whatever we get from the uh, the money in the next two days. Uh, and it's a million dollar game, so that's like a third. Of, that's like a third of the game budget. Uh, and because we were naive and did not know that everybody funded it elsewhere, uh, you know, we didn't go to a publisher for the rest of the money. I did talk to some investors in uh, early uh, mid 2013, 
and we didn't make a deal with them because it felt like uh, they were asking for too much for their money. Uh, but you know, with uh, you know, with the mirror of 2020 hindsight, I would have said, oh yeah, yeah, I'll give up, I'll give up uh, 50 or 60 percent of uh, all the money for the game in return for uh, no risk. Sure, <laughs> but but we didn't do that, so we're taking the risk personally, and we're hoping there's still an adventure game market out there because. Uh, this game will need to sell at least 20,000 uh, games before we even break even on our own money. Well, to your point, the guys who did, well, Stephen Alexander, the guy behind Quest for Infamy, him and his team, before they did that, they made a Space Quest 2 VGA remake, and they made a King's Quest 3 VGA remake. Both of them basically, you know, they didn't get paid anything for the, either of those, and they're used to just working for, you know, fandom, essentially. And to actually make any money on the game for them, is uh, infinitely more than they were making in the past in their previous games. So it's a different mindset. You know, they're doing it, like, as a hobby, but for you guys, you're doing it as your career. So, obviously, the, there's different trade-offs there. Couldn't yeah, expect and, and, it's, and that's perfectly valid, and I will not say that those games are any, you know, are any lesser than ours, uh, because those guys are passionate about what they're doing. Uh, they're making a game as a hobby, but, you know, they're making it with all their heart. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and they're donating the most valuable currency of all, which is their time. Uh, <clears throat> and it's entirely possible that, you know, many of those fan games are everybody as good as the games we're doing. Uh, the difference is that, you know, we decided from the beginning that uh, we wanted to use a professional team and that we wanted to pay all the people on the team. And that's where, you know, the basketball career, and Lori and I have not paid ourselves anything. So, in a sense, we're doing this as a fan effort. Uh, we're, we're in the hole on it. <laughs> most of those games are not anywhere near as good as a professional game. Like, there's a couple... I mean, because I, I see a lot of them come out. There's a couple of them that are good, and then there's a lot that are not so good. <laughs> or they, they could be well, good if they were polished a hundred times more than they are, but it's a well, nugget you, there. You can, yeah, you can say that. I can't. If I say that, uh, I got in a <laughs> lot of trouble. I got in a lot of trouble when I uh, published a thing of, uh, you know, games of thirty or $40,000 by like that uh, some people were very offended, and they say, uh, you know, this is uh, this is a real game too, and they're right; they are real games. Uh, whether they're better or not, you know, uh, based on you know getting the adventure game of the year and stuff, uh, most games made contemporary with ours weren't as good as ours. But you won't hear me say that because, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm not here to offend people, and I haven't played most of those other games. Right. The market is, is definitely there to some extent, at least. I mean, if you look at Telltale Games, which they're adventure light, I would say, nowadays. If you look at companies like Dedelic in Germany, which is publishing you know, things like crazy, there's definitely market out there, especially in Germany. Basically, the localization might be important. But <laughs> there's definitely a market for these games. It's just a matter of Sometimes, you know, a game gets a buzz and, you know, another game doesn't sometimes. Like, the press right now, like, loves Telltale. They, like, review every single one of their games for whatever reason, you know, deserved or not deserved, good or bad. But they get that. And then, you know, other people don't necessarily get that level of press coverage. So the market's there. I think it's a matter of finding the market. Oh, we have had an absolutely terrible time getting any press coverage whatsoever for this uh, Kickstarter campaign. Uh, part of it is the fact that, uh, you know, people aren't sure what to make of it because it's the... Uh, you know, the second one for a game that uh, uh, we're, you know, our game is in trouble in the sense that uh, we originally estimated it would take a year, and that was uh, became totally ludicrous when, uh, once we lost the original developer. Uh, but, you know, we're now two and a half years into it. It's, uh, we're saying now it's going to take a year, and it will. It'll take actually about nine months uh, from this point on. Um, and that's a more, real, you know, more realistic, because now we have two, two and a half years of assets. Um, 
but uh, you know, basically the press has completely ignored it. Uh, and the other part is the reason the Kickstarter is no longer a hot topic like it was in 2012. Uh, so uh, the press does not cover Kickstarter games very much unless they make a million dollars in their first day or something. Uh, the uh, uh, the Castlevania game, uh, Bloodstained, got a huge amount of press. Uh, and uh, Bard's Tale uh, got very good uh, press because uh, they had the mailing list of all the people that supported Wasteland 2 and uh, Torment. And so they got a tremendous uh, first two days of their Kickstarter and dropped off uh, very little after that. They're now making about ten to 20000 a day, which we'd love to be making ten or $20,000 a day in our Kickstarter, but that's really a pittance compared to uh, what their previous games did. So... Uh, kind of, the, uh, there's still a lot of money being made in Kickstarter, but really the bloom is off the rose. The press doesn't cover it, and we've had uh, a number of people putting in thousands of dollars into this campaign who have said, uh, basically, you know, I wish I'd known about this sooner. I never heard about the first Kickstarter, and it was absolute coincidence and luck that I ran across this one. You know, uh, we get stories like, uh, okay, I decided to replay your games as a uh, multi-class character. I was looking at the best way to do that, and. I said, oh, I wonder what Corey and Lori are up to now, and they looked uh, looked us up, and eventually, uh, you know, about five levels down, found a link to our Kickstarter. So uh, it's a miracle that anybody has found it. Uh, we had 6,000 people support the first one, and we thought that was actually amazing because it was just a rough concept. We didn't really have anything to show now. But now that we actually have a game to show off, we got demos and everything else, uh, you know, we're hoping we could find another five or 10,000 people to come in, and uh, we've mostly got the same people that supported the first one, so... Uh, that's a little scary in terms of whether there's a market out there. Are you going to continue like doing like slacker backers after the Kickstarter closes, like have a PayPal link or something like that? Yeah, we'll definitely uh, uh, we made a deal with uh, Humble Bundle. We have Humble Store links on our uh, uh, website that uh, that you lo let you do it. But again, it's a question of discoverability. Not that many people find their way to uh, hero-u.com. Uh, uh, those who do, you know, have been uh, you know very vocal supporters, uh, but it's uh, it's very hard for anyone to discover us. I know uh, Kickstarter, um, Steam is another piece of the puzzle. Um, I saw a few weeks ago that um, Hero U was on green light, and I did vote for it, but I haven't checked recently sorry, if, it, if it got, um, if it made it. But I know that uh, that's an advantage for you guys now. Steam is because you don't have to fight for shelf space or anything like that. Um, what's but you're not going to found that Steam. That's yeah. a, that's a uh, So yeah, we got greenlighted in ten days. Very good record. Uh, I've been reading articles about uh, projects that were up there for a year before getting greenlighted and stuff like that. Uh, it's not a record, but uh, pretty close. Uh, so, uh, and in a sense, it was a negative that we got greenlit uh, that quickly because we kind of wanted the greenlight campaign to go through most of the Kickstarter, so would, people would go from there to the Kickstarter page. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, we came and went on Steam in ten days. Uh, we will be, we will have a Steam release. We will definitely have a humble release, and I'm like 98% certain we'll have a GOG.com release because uh, uh, we talked to them about two years ago at E3, and they were very excited about uh, you know having us up there. Uh, the people who run GOG are Quest for Glory fans. It's ironic that I mean there are there are other Kickstarters that happened before around the same time as the first Curio from other Sierra um, veterans and. I don't think those were received quite so well, actually. I mean, the Space Adventure never didn't come out yet. I don't know what, what's going on with that. Um, the Jane Jensen stuff was, ver I mean, Mobius was panned completely, and um, Gabriel Knight remake was panned by me, at least. I don't know, but <laughs> it seems like there's mixed opinion on that one. 
Well, that's a, that's the problem, and that's uh, uh, people have very high expectations of these games, and they're comparing our games with ones that are, with modern games that have a twenty million dollar budget, and we're doing these in a half million dollar budget or less. Uh, so, uh, Leisure Suit Larry uh, Rewound, or whatever it was called, uh, was the uh, um, you know was the first uh, big Sierra Kickstarter, and that brought in over six hundred thousand uh, dollars, and uh, that game got out, but it got a lot of bad press because of uh, uh, the exploits of the uh, company founder, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, I, I've heard uh, privately from uh, some of the people that work with it that the, uh, uh, they did not get paid everything that they wrote, and I won't mention names there, but the, not not all the bills were paid out of that, despite the fact that they made uh, uh, two hundred twenty thousand dollars more than we did. Uh, uh, so that was a you know that kind of set the expectations, but that was a remake. It is far easier to. Uh, uh, create a remake of a game and you know what all the storyline is, you know what all the scenes are and so on, you're just writing some additional uh, text for it uh, than it is to come out with a, a completely new uh, IP. Um, so uh, they had a relatively easy road to hoe, road to hoe and they did hoe it. Uh, uh, good word in terms of that. Uh, the uh, second one was uh, Space Venture uh, and that ran into trouble uh, because uh, about a week or two into the campaign uh, they were told that uh, uh, they were using the names two guys from Andromeda or guys from Andromeda, and they were mentioning that they were doing had done Space Quest, and they were told they're going to be sued over that, uh, that they did not have the right to use those uh, names, and they actually went dark for about two weeks in the middle of their Kickstarter campaign and stopped posting any updates or anything because uh, they were told they're going to be sued. They did some research and discovered that no, the guys saying they were going to sue us had no leg to stand on. They didn't have any standing anyway. Uh, they didn't actually have any skin in the game, the people that were threatening to sue them. Uh, and so they resumed the campaign. And as a result, uh, they made their 500,000 goal and went just a little over, I think it was 535,000 or something. Uh, um, and I will tell you, you know, just with our 400,000, uh, 535 is not enough to make a zero style game. Uh, and especially after you subtract the fees and uh, the cost of the physical rewards and so on. Uh, so Mark and Scott have been working really hard on that game. We ran into them at Comic-Con last year uh, and talked with them for a while, met with them and Chris Pope. Uh, uh, we met Chris as a result of Space Factor. He's a great guy. Uh, but, uh, yes, uh, Scott is, uh, you know, has family troubles that have nothing to do with uh, uh, the game that are eating up a tremendous amount of his time. Uh, but he's doing occasional work on it. Josh Mandel is helping out with that. Uh, Mark Crow is working full-time on it. He's... He's done some art that I think is absolutely gorgeous, and then I go up and read in the uh, comments and forums, and people say, oh, I hate this new art style. And it's like, I don't understand these people. You know, I don't know where they're coming from and how they can see one of, some of these beautiful scenes that Mark is painting and say they don't like it. And it's the same thing that people talk about. You know, our EGA art was so wonderful, and uh, uh, you know, but the fact is the EGA art was pretty terrible compared to modern art standards, uh, and it only worked uh, because low resolution monitors back then, you couldn't see the individual pixels and stuff. It's like uh, early uh, uh, TV stuff, uh, you know, blurred all the colors together, the, the old Atari VCS games, uh, blurred the stuff together in the screen so it made it look better than it actually was. You take that same art and put it on a modern screen, it looks absolutely atrocious. It's all pixelated and uh, it just looks bad. Uh, so anyway, Space Venture are doing amazing art. They're working really hard on it. I think they said they were going to release... Uh, around the end of this year, but yeah, they, were discover they discovered all the problems we did. Uh, they decided to use Unity, they discovered Unity is much harder to make an adventure game uh, with than uh, they expected, 
Uh, they ran into trouble with a programmer that basically couldn't quite hack it and had to switch their programming team. So they've gone through all this all the same stuff we have. Uh, and they're really good guys. They will come out with a great game. Uh, but uh, they're, you know, they're not interested in doing a mediocre game. That's the same thing with us. You know, we could probably have a game out, uh, out by now, but it wouldn't be very good. Mm. And we didn't take half a million dollars of people's Kickstarter money in order to come out with a not very good game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's see, what's the third one? Mobius, uh, the Pinkerton Road uh, Studios, they had this idea of a year of adventure, and you would uh, actually subscribe to their service, and they were planning on coming out like two games a year that you can subscribe to, and they discovered that, once again, that doing indie games, you can't actually come out with two games a year. Uh, that it, you know, it takes a long time to make these things. Uh, they made some independent publisher deals, so they got some money from that, but uh, uh, word on the street is that uh, uh, Jane and Robert are kind of losing their shirts on, uh, on that project. Mm -hmm. So we had these, all these uh, fans that, you know, because they loved them, came in and gave them money, uh, and it wasn't enough. Uh, they made slightly more than we did. They made like I think four hundred thirty thousand, uh, and it just was not enough for the ambitious plans they had for that game and the fact that uh, you know they used a third-party developer for it that was pretty expensive, uh, and uh, uh, they have they've not seen any return for those games, uh, and they need a lot more sales than they're getting. And the fact that the games were reviewed, you know, got mediocre reviews, well, you know. Part of that is that uh, people that love these games remembered how great Gabriel Knight was and so on, uh, you know, are using hindsight and they remember the good parts and they blissfully forget things like, uh, you know, like Quest for Glory uh, uh, 4 crashing at the beginning of the game uh, on the very first road you had to walk down and stuff like that. Yeah, the slope. The, the, <laughs> there was a timing error of the uh, programming on it that uh, caused it to randomly crash uh, about six, you know, Depending on the machine speed, the faster your machine, the more it crashed. <laughs> terrible, terrible stuff like that. Uh, so a new game comes out and people brand it as mediocre. The fact is, most of the adventure games in the 90s were mediocre. You know, we have this uh, rose-colored uh, vision of how wonderful they were, but you know, they had good, good parts and bad parts. Uh, so uh, people now are expecting perfection from a game, and particularly if it's a commercial game, uh, that you know, hundreds of thousands went into the budget instead of tens of thousands. Uh, they're expecting perfection, and they're getting pretty good. Uh, and as a result, the games are not selling, and uh, it's really hurting the developers. So, you know, I, I think there's a very good chance we're going to finish this game, we're going to get it out, it's going to be as good as we can possibly make it, uh, and uh, it won't be what people are expecting, because it is different from Quest for Glory. Uh, and then we'll see, we may end up in debt for the rest of our lives. But we'll made another <laughs> game, and that's kind of worth it all by itself. Hopefully not. And I know Joel's about to wrap this up because we're like over time and he's going to cut me yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, I talk a lot. No, I don't. No, that's fine. I have one more question for you. Just when I was doing looking at the first Hero You campaign back, you know what it was a year or so ago, a couple of years ago. Um, I didn't know what was going on with you guys until that point, and I looked online and there was something called School for Heroes, which it seems like it was something. I don't know. From what I'm reading it, it sounds like it was like it was a D and D game you guys were running or something. But I couldn't get a real good sense of what it was, and it's, and it's been shut down, it's over. Could you talk about that for a minute, just to, what was that exactly? Yeah. What we were doing with it is um, it was an online school that was honestly a, uh, to, to get into the school, you had to take a kind of pseudo uh, uh, psychology test, a sort of Myers-Briggs test, to check out what kind of personality you had as a person. And then we assigned you a 
a character class based on your personality. So um, we had the character classes of wizards, warrior, uh, rogue, and uh, magic user. And each class actually had a curriculum designed around that personality and uh, what we believed that that was the right, you know, the, the, the type of thing you do in real life is, is who you are. So in the case of the uh, warrior, for instance, that was a leadership course. And if you did it, you could do, you know, you, you became, you actually talked about what you were doing in real life to be a warrior. Um, in the case of the rogue, we talked about what you were doing, you know, uh, the, the kind of things you could get away with and the whole idea of this kind of counterculture, subversive, under the table type of behavior. Um, and uh, all of it was for the idea that in real life you could be a hero, but it also had a strong role-playing aspect to it. In fact, we had uh, forums that would have role-playing stories going on with your characters in the school. And uh, it was a really interesting experiment. We had a lot of people come through it, and a lot of people, uh, actually a lot of people that are supporting Hero U um, came from the school. So is any of that content still available? Because I, I, I wish I'd heard of it when it was going on, but I didn't hear about it until afterwards, I guess. Well, the problem was it was extremely time-consuming because actually, you know, all of the teachers were the teachers that you'll find in Hero U, and they were all roles that I was playing, and, they, and the curriculum for each different class was different. They were, you know, it was suited for that personality type. The wizards had a lot of creative writing, a lot of um, interesting ways, like one of the assignments for the wizard was to create a magic item for their life that would help them do something. So it was creative writing and uh, uh, self-improvement and, and self-empowerment with the assignments. And everyone had to be read by me, and, and they all got assigned, and they all got graded. And it, so it was really a class that I was putting on for free online uh, with anywhere from, you know, up to 500 people at its, as, at its heyday. So. Uh, we started running into uh, uh, problems with newer versions of PHP were incompatible with the uh, code that I wrote for the site. Uh, and... Uh, so, you know, so once we were no longer running the school, we stopped updating that and found that uh, you know, trying to get to the old pages, they just didn't work anymore. Uh, so uh, probably I could spend a few days uh, researching what's wrong and bring them up. But basically all you would be able to do at this point is go and look at other people's uh, you know, assignments that were given at the school and see how they answered them. Uh, but to actually do the assignments, uh, it was entirely annual. Lori wrote all the stuff. And basically, she did the same amount of work that we would put into a quest for glory, except that uh, it was to uh, service you know 100 people instead of uh, a couple hundred thousand. Uh, so it's just it's the cross of economies of scale. Uh, you know, it's really nice to be able to do the uh, D and tabletop experience where you have individual treatment for every person, uh, but uh, uh, that doesn't scale well. <laughs> yeah, I, I just have to really use this opportunity to to say a huge thank you for for Quest for Glory. I mean, I'm I do not play RPG games at all. I'm not a role play gamer. I played the only Ultima I played was like 
Ultima 8 because it has more action elements and RPG elements included in the game. And um, so I don't see Quest for Glory series as RPG games. I think they are adventure games with heavily RPG elements included. And so within my, my top three adventure games of all time, besides um, Gabriel Knight and The Day of the Tentacle, it's definitely Shadows of Darkness. So this is one of my top three games of all times. This is just so perfect in, in many aspects. It's such a magical, great game story-wise, puzzle-wise, and it still has everything I really enjoyed a lot. So, um, so just a quick thank you from my side. And and if you do with, with Hero you something that is half as good as Shadows of Darkness, then I definitely will enjoy the game a lot. So I'm, I'm heavily looking forward to that one. And um, there's just one wish. Um, as you know, we are big box collectors. Please don't screw up the Kickstarter box of, Quest for, uh, of Hero you sorry. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I hope. Uh, the, the big question. Yeah. yeah. The big question we have right now is that the uh, $80 reward level, uh, we promised uh, like a uh, DVD uh, keep case instead of a big box. Uh, and from economies of scale, again, uh, we're not actually sure if we're going to do that. We may actually uh, uh, make boxes for those people as well. Uh, it's just a question of, uh, you know, whether we have, what our minimum printing order is. If the minimum print order is 1,000, we'll probably use the same box for all of them. Oh, don't say that. Order is... don't, don't, don't say that now, Corey. Wait till after the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we're not promising. We're promised as a keep case uh, because if the minimum print order is uh, 250, then it's much cheaper to do the keep cases. Uh, and you know, even if the printing costs are that much different, uh, the shipping costs are cheaper. The uh, storage cost for all the extra boxes is cheaper, and so on. Uh, so it's you know, it's weird criteria that go into this. <laughs> And, of course, you can only get it. You'll never get it on the store shelves. It'll only be available through Kickstarter or through private orders. So, therefore, you know, when you get your big box, you'll get the, you know, the really limited edition copy. Yeah, and also the, big, so, the collector's one has all these nice feelies in it, too. So I'm assuming those won't yeah. go to the lower tiers. Cause that's, I'm always looking forward to the feelies. That's, for me, the funnest, uh -huh. the best, most fun element. Yeah, I, you know, I feel like we overpriced that, but on the other hand, uh, if you look at Japanese uh, boutique games that are intended for a smaller audience, uh, they will actually charge two or three times as much as the commercial games for those. And the U.S. Uh, market is uh, very price sensitive, uh, and mostly doesn't go for that. The people want to pay $10 or less for a game, uh, and the fact is that if we've only got an audience of ten or 20,000 players, we can't afford to do it for uh, 5 or $10. If you've got a uh, you know if you've got an audience of a million players, you can, uh, and yet uh, in the U.S. it's the exact reverse that uh, games like Call of Duty uh, charge premium prices to fifty or sixty dollars or more, uh, and that the uh, smaller, lesser-known games people won't buy if they're more than twenty or so. Uh, we plan to retail uh, Quest for Glory. I'm sorry, Hero You as uh, uh, thirty dollars uh, for digital only. Uh, and we plan to not sell a physical copy at all. So these, uh, if this game takes off and sells a million uh, units, the uh, people who got in that Kickstarter will have the rarest collector, collector's items ever. We're really trying to make give people uh, an experience, a, a fun experience with our Kickstarters. That's the other thing is we've looked at Kickstarter as a way of reaching out to fans to talk to them and to give them what they want and to find out, get feedback. You'll see we did a lot of... Uh, polls on our website and things like that to really get into what people want 
and to try to provide that form. And that's why we now have uh, in our um, collection of travel posters that we were that we're uh, selling on our site. Uh, we have the poster of Mordavia because everybody said that was their favorite one. That's the one they wanted to see. And so now we have this wonderful, you know, Mordavian come to Mordavia poster that we're creating thanks to fans saying that, hey, that's the one we really want. And, uh, and of course, we have JP, John Paul Selwood, who created it in the course of two days, it created this really beautiful, beautiful masterpiece. So that's the great beauty of Kickstarter. It allows us to really find out what people want and what they're what they're looking for in the game. And it affects our the way we design and what we do with it. Yes. So the you know in answer to the earlier question, you know, is it uh, you know is Kickstarter uh, you know really tough on us? And it is. I mean it's very time consuming, but at the same time it's exhilarating, it's fun. Uh, because we have an interaction with our players that we couldn't have in the old days. Uh, you know, back then, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to talk about the game, they wrote us a letter. And uh, maybe it eventually got to us, maybe it didn't. And we've had some amazing letters from people that said our games were, you know, so influential that uh, uh, several people have said, I, you know, I got into game development because of that. And several other people have said, uh, I became a doctor and went down to Guatemala and Haiti to work with uh, poor people there uh, because your games inspired me that I could be a hero. And, uh, you know, we read stuff like that and say, hey, we did that with a game? That's pretty cool. Uh, but, yeah, it's, you know, so it's great to be able to interact with the fans. And, and you know, we, we adapt. Uh, all of our games, uh, you know, even our own designs within the game, uh, a lot of times come down to uh, uh, knock down, drag out, uh, whatever the expression is, <laughs> uh, uh, arguments between Lori and me, uh, where one of us will come up with an idea, the other will say, well, that's stupid. And they'll say, oh, but what if? And then we'll, we'll keep working the idea back and forth, and eventually it turns out to be something we can put in the game. Uh, we, uh, we still don't have lockpicking exactly the way we want it, but you know, we've uh, spent, oh, probably, uh, if you add it all together to the hours, we've probably spent uh, three weeks doing nothing but brainstorming about how lockpicking is going to work in the game. Uh, and uh, you know, stuff like that. So these things really, uh, you know, getting feedback helps. And, or sometimes you get stuck on it anyway. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for coming, um, especially um, Corey and Lori Cole. We really appreciate you guys taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us today. Yeah. Um, and thanks for doing what you do because, um, you know, uh, the, the games you created are what made us into the adults we are today, which is, you know, when the other kids were playing um, Little League, I was at home playing Quest for Glory, and um, <laughs> I... Uh, Grew up and became an artist, and and um, part of that was probably because of Quest for Glory One. So I really appreciate what you guys do, and you'll always have a home in the big box PC game collectors group. So thanks for coming. <laughs>